it's so clear that health is dependent on the environment around you, not just the natural environment, the political, social, economic environment. So welcome to our first audio report. This will be a discussion on the history of disease and this is, uh, will be part of the research and part discussion. So I'm Elahi, I'm a neuroscience researcher at Centric Lab and currently a PhD student at UCL2. Um, and let's dive straight in. So when we look at the history of human health and disease, research suggests that there seems to be three key epidemiological transitions. And that is changes in the sort of patterns and death and disease across human timeline. And the first transition was the age of pestilence and famine. So this occurred around 10,000 years ago when human societies began to move away from the nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyles to embrace the agricultural societies and embrace this ag agricultural revolution as we began to form agrarian societies. And with this shift, uh, it included the establishment of feudal societies, for example, and resulted in humans living in longer term structures and in closer proximity to one another and also other domesticated species for prolonged periods. And with this shift in living, there was an increase in the levels of infectious diseases, especially zoonoses. Um, and this was brought about through poorer sanitation levels and also due to novel disease vectories. And then this comes on to the second transition, which was the age of receding pandemics. And this occurred in tandem with the Industrial Revolution. So as humans began migrating from the rural farmlands in search of great opportunities and labour in the factories of the dense urban cities, humans began to be exposed to a new range of um, factors. And these were slow and insidious toxic pollutants, often coming from the very industrial activities they, they came to participate in. So you can think of things such as smog from coal-powered operations, the asbestos in the housing and construction and the lead. And humans also began to live in overcrowded and unsanitary dwellings. We had poorer drainage systems, as reduced access to high-quality food and water, and this again contributed to diseases such as cholera, tuberculosis, respiratory and chronic disease. And finally, you had the third transition. This is the age of degenerative and human-made diseases and aging populations. And this is what we're currently within. And as human societies began to operate on an infinite growth model, treats environmental pollution and destruction as an externality, and we're having more sedentary field knowledge economies with ever-increasing fast-paced and processed lifestyles, in addition with this integration to a greater globalised network. You have these degenerative and chronic diseases such as cancer, obesity, heart and respiratory diseases as our current challenges. But also at the same time, we're having the re-emergence of old and new infectious diseases. Uh, this is due to increased antibiotic resistance in the world and exploitative and invasive operations that are going into the deepest untouched areas of our world and bringing us into contact with uh, new novel disease vector routes. And what's becoming clearer is that 
our modern environments are not suited for our current biological architecture. New perspectives such as the ancestral susceptibility hypothesis, for example, suggests that there is a mismatch between the ancestral environments our bodies have adapted to at the genetic level over millennia, for example, and our current modern environments and the systems of living we currently are entrenched in, be the general economic systems, our food and transport systems. Um, these have all rapidly developed and discharged all of these externalities that have harmed our health and haven't given us a possible chance for our bodies to catch up and adapt to them. And this mismatch may explain why there's an increased prevalence of these chronic diseases, such as obesity and diabetes that we're witnessing. So it's becoming increasingly clear that the relationship between human health and disease really is a complex and dynamic interplay between the physical, social environment and the body. And having said this, we uh, would like to now introduce Aracelli. Um, so would you like to just introduce yourself and sort of go into uh, the research that you've done and what will be discussed in the audit report that follows. Yes, thank you for that, Elahi. So I am Aricelli. I am a neuroscientist, and I am also part of Centric Lab. And I'm going to pick up from what Elahi was saying on the historical perspective and centering it now to health justice. So the reason why we're having this discussion. So first of all, we talk about place. Place in this case is specifically to cities. The reason we are talking about cities is one, because it is a current important and significant habitat um, where it has high concentrations of people living within it. But two, they will continue to evolve and become more important as time goes on, especially within the context of climate change. Climate change is going to take away more livable land and populations are going to have to migrate to towns, which those towns are going to be forced to grow probably into cities and equally cities will also continue to grow as the towns expand and those populations move into, into, into cities. So we are going to see that the higher concentration of both people and land is going to be more of a focal point in the future driven by climate change. So that is why we're focusing on cities. Um, and in terms of a health justice perspective, health justice being the asking for dignity and equitability of health for all beings. And when we say all beings, we do mean from trees to the soil, to water, to us as people. In this current climate, we are going through a pandemic. And what is really interesting is that we're already being asked to live with COVID. And this was the crux of this conversation, of what instigated this conversation or this investigation. That we are asked by society, in this case, governmental policy, governmental strategies and communications, to think of disease whilst it is natural, but we also have to think about it as a common occurrence, part of simply being on this planet. However, we're 
in the report and in discussions with our participants, we're going to find out that that's not the full picture. Whilst, yes, it's a natural phenomena, we drive the factors of disease, its acuteness, its prevalence, its dominance. And so coming back to COVID and being asked to live with it, we're being asked for an incredible amount, specifically as we look at COVID in its number one, as a long-haul disease, but number two, into its secondary factors. So in the terms of its long-haul disease, we're being asked to accept that more people are going to have to live with chronic migraines, with chronic digestive issues, possibly with chronic neurological issues. And how does that affect their quality life later on? Number one. Number two, we all have seen this pandemic evolve. So many of the strategies that were designed and put in place led to the current situation that we in, led to long haul COVID. So, as an example, the way COVID was first designed in terms of diagnosis was through a set of very specific symptoms. People were coming in and saying, actually, I am having other symptoms. They're lasting longer. It's not just three weeks. I am six months in and I'm still sick. But doctors and medical practitioners all the way up to organizations like the WHO ignored these symptoms, dismissing them as nothing to do with COVID. All of those decisions and strategies have a design element. And that's what we're meaning when we're saying that the design of disease in in that we are helping its propagation. An independent company called We Are Body Politic ended up collating a whole bunch of case studies of people suffering from long COVID that went from the community all the way back up to the health, the World Health Organization, and then it was accepted. But by then, we lost time to really understand this disease or this pandemic in terms of its of its long-termness, which then, of course takes away time from being able to prevent it. And that is that is there the crux of what we mean of things being preventable. That whilst, yes, COVID is a part of a natural phenomena, its propagation or its evolution was partly designed by the decisions made by humans. The second part of it is its secondary effects, which only now are being acknowledged by Public Health England, even though Many epidemiologists, many medical practitioners involved in health justice started to talk about this from the very beginning. The secondary effects being, for example, a person that got dismissed from work because they got long-haul COVID and now they're not able to sustain a long-term job. We do know in the way that our society is currently organized that if you fall back financially, you then have less access to healthcare strategies, but also the stress of being financially vulnerable can add up to stressors, not to mention that if you then cascade into homelessness or insecure housing, that also has effects. But then the next tier is the depression and anxiety from living through a traumatic event. We have yet to be able to see what those stats are going to look like, but there will be PTSD, 
um, that is going to be increased is specifically coming from the essential workers, essential workers ranging from the the first responders in 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 the medical industry all the way to the people that sustained our hygiene those people were forced into situations that were highly traumatic of high stress and they will eventually show signs of ptsd which we have yet to measure the rest of us in the general population depending of where and how we confronted the trauma of the pandemic we are going to be left with anxiety and depression that is still, again, yet to be diagnosed. And so when we look back in a historical lens, we are going to be able to see all the different steps that could have been taken to prevent the increase of these diseases, the depression, the anxieties, the PTSD, the long haul COVID. So what we're asking our listeners and the people in the Urban Health Council to do is to start thinking about how we can start doing things differently from now on, that we don't get into into these situations where disease simply has to be accepted, or we simply just have to learn to live with it, or that we simply have to tolerate it. Because when we do that, we end up, unfortunately, also tolerating um, the, the, the organizations and the systems that want this to continue, which again, we are going to discuss further in the discussion. Um, So this ends the part of the longer exposition part of the audio report. You can read this in full detail, plus plug into the different resources that we use to cut to to put and piece together this this report so you can go and do your own research um, and then of course you can listen on through to the discussion that we are going to have with Rhiannon and Hannah who are a coming from the medical world and the built environment world respectively so I hope that you find this useful again it's a point of discussion it's a point of asking questions that can lead us to having a society that is built around health rather than health and justice. Let's start with introductions. So Rhiannon, Hannah, please tell us who you are, what are your knowledge pools, and what is your interest in health justice? So shall we go alphabetically, Hannah first, and then Rhiannon? Yes, perfect, thank you. Um, I'm Hannah and I did, um, I have a background in urban studies and urbanism, um, primarily at the beginning working on like placemaking, tactical urbanism, thinking specifically about um, the city at eye level and especially for children, thinking about children's space in the city. And then I um, shifted gears slightly towards sustainable urbanism and thinking about how cities are crucial in climate action. Um, And then now, Um, I'm moving from that space into thinking more about sustainability and for who. um, And that's where I'm coming into thinking more about um, climate justice, health justice, and specifically around food um, and knowledge around food um, in the city and how we can get access to that. Um, And I'm thinking about wellness and health um, from a perspective holistically, not just about um, are we like exercising and eating right, but rather what are the um, systems and and structures that contain us and how they determine health um, as well. So that's my background. 
Perfect. Thank you so much for that, Hannah. Um, and now over to you, Rhiannon. Hi. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm Rhiannon Osborne. I'm a medical student. I'm in my, uh, what year am I in now? My penultimate year at the moment. So nearly there. Um, and I would say I came to health justice work by kind of, I think in my second year, I reckon it was like a really deep seated feeling that something about the way I was being taught about health and healing wasn't right I really felt that like something was was missing and that this wasn't all of the story and that I kind of felt like we were being trained to pick up the pieces of a broken society rather than actually address what was breaking people's bodies and making yeah like making them come and see us and we were kind of just putting a plaster on that um so from there, I went on to study um, neuroscience and sociology. So I looked at the neuroscience of childhood poverty um, and the sociology of health and illness. Um, and then I took some time out from my degree and was kind of like, ooh, global health, that sounds nice, and quickly realised that it was very different to, to what I thought it was and very neocolonial. Um, so I've ended up doing a lot of my work on access to medicines, so looking at global trade rules and how they favour the profits of pharmaceutical companies over the, the right to health for the a large proportion of the world. Um, and actually from there, interestingly, went to looking at climate change and health kind of both on the local and the international level looking not just at and I think this is something that often gets missed in the climate change and health conversation not just how climate change is going to impact our health but how the drivers of climate change like our transport systems our food systems um, are already damaging our health um, even if they weren't causing the climate crisis they would still be industries that we needed to dismantle um, and I think from there kind of got more and more radicalized and now mostly work with the people's health movement, um, doing work on kind of capitalism and neoliberalism and activism and community building and, uh, the kind of political determinants of health, I'd say. Wow. Okay. So we are incredibly grateful and privileged to have both of you guys here, um, such amazing um, expertise and knowledge pools from both of you. So um, for those of you who are going to be listening and also for um, us at the ta- around the table, um, let's hold three thoughts or mental buckets, as it were, um, for this audio report. So the first is that disease, we do recognize that it's a natural phenomenon. It's naturally occurring. However, the prevalence in acuteness is driven by human strategies and designs. So actually, Rhiannon, you already talked to one of transport systems, um, the rate of contamination to our water and air and land as examples of strategies and design. In the context of our time, these strategies and designs are rooted in racism, classism, ableism, transphobia, homophobia, and other discriminants that lead to a societal exclusion and oppression of certain peoples, which of course then has an effect on their health. And that disease doesn't happen in a vacuum or in isolations. It is, they take place in the places that we live and in the social influences of that said place. So going now to Hannah, the way things are designed. So 
really good point in terms of diet and health that we then have to think about the food systems because if that food that we are eating isn't even healthy because it's also full of contaminants, it's not actually going to help us. It can actually add to the disease pathology. The second bucket is, well, where we say place. So where are the places that we do this? At the moment, cities are where we are concentrating because that is where human life is concentrating and supposedly will continue to concentrate in. Um, So modern cities are now the places where disease is also concentrating. Although, of course, we have to acknowledge that it's spreading everywhere because where industry moves, industry also being agriculture, disease also follows. So cancer corridor in the United States is next to abundant agricultural land, but also industrial land out in the middle of nowhere. So we do have to acknowledge that. And so we, but we also have to understand why this is happening. What is that? And that's going to be part of this conversation. And then the next um, and final um, bucket to hold is how do we get out of this? So hitting um, medical strategies from Rhiannon's perspective, and then also hitting the urban planning strategies, especially interested in the fact that Hannah, you're working on childhood strategies, because if we're framing disease from a temporal perspective, how we are set up as children very much affects how our own individual pathologies of of disease. So maybe not looking at dementia just as an elderly disease, but looking at as a neurodevelopmental disease. What are we doing with children from very young ages? What environments are we creating for them? What environments are they colliding with that could then um, set them up? And then finally, I do want to put in a caveat. We are not talking about genetic determinism or determinism by place. There are multiple factors that affect disease. So just because a person grows up in a certain environment does not mean that they are determined and predispositioned for that disease. It just means that they are at higher risk for it. And uh, and the reason it's important to make that caveat is because if we don't, it again, it adds to the discrimination and or marginalization of people thinking that, oh, if you are from this place, you are then destined for the following biological consequence. So let's start the discussion. Um, So let's start first with that part of the history. And this is up to whomever wants to answer first. Do any of you have any thoughts on this history of disease? How did it evolve with human evolution or human even industrialization, if we want to be specific? Um, perhaps I could I could start with some thoughts about that. I think um, so often when we think about um, disease, it's it's actually about an imbalance with the world in which we're living in. And I think if you think about the history of cities and and groups of people together, um, it's often that we're becoming more and more um, disconnected from the natural world within which we're living when the density of people grows as well. So I feel like 
um, from a, a historic or origins of disease perspective is often when you get groupings of people that aren't living in natural balance with the world around them, that disease can start to break out amongst humans and spread. Um, yeah. Okay, Hannah, can I push you towards a little bit more, especially in the context of cities? So cities being places where, well, we don't have high concentrations of, of, of natural elements. Um, I think a lot of the part of the thinking about cities and high concentrations of people is how do you feed those high concentrations of people? And that means a change in agriculture and a change in the use of land. And I think those changes um, in land causes disruptions in ecosystems and in relationships between people and animals and the domestication of animals. Um, and I think that breeds like a, a hotbed of of like of of disease and of changes so yeah i think that important idea of the separation of humans from nature is a really really important aspect of the history of disease because it's also thinking about where is disease located and what kind of aspects of our environment are responsible not just for disease but but for health and like where does the generation of health come from um and you know indigenous peoples and lots of people and also in particular marginalized people peoples in places like the uk it's so clear that health is dependent on the environment around you not just the natural environment the political social economic environment um and a lot of my work kind of looks at that question of who is responsible for health and disease like whose whose problem or whose issue is it? Um, and I think this is where kind of capitalism and, and neoliberalism come in really strongly because we've seen disease constructed. And, and I think it's also important to think about how disease has always been socially constructed. What counts as a disease? What counts as health has always been a reflection of the society around us from, you know, like his, like the historical diagnosis of hysteria in women to the pathologization of transgender people. It's always been a reflection of the society around us and the idea that, you know, medicine or definitions of disease or hospitals are in any way able to separate themselves from wider society, um, I think is something that we need to work on deconstructing. Um, but in, yeah, in terms of my work in the who's responsible for disease, I look a lot at how disease has been relegated to the individual as a biological or moral failing that they need to remedy by going to see a doctor or changing their behavior or changing their lifestyle factors. Um, and it's never the problem of, say, a corporation. You know, it's, it's not the responsibility of a corporation to worry about health and disease, or it's not the responsibility of a transport minister to worry about health and disease. Um, I think it's also really important within that framing of health as an individual to think about who that who that serves, right? Because what we see under capitalism and colonialism or colonial capitalism, as um, Rupa Mari and Raj Patel talked about um, in their new book, which I really loved, um, because the, the distribution of health and disease is, is based on wealth, right? So if you are going to do that and if you're going to make some people healthy, at the, literally at the expense of the bodies of others by extracting labour and resources from the global south, resulting in huge health losses for those communities to feed the consumption of the super rich in the global north, 
then you have to you have to say who's responsible for it. And in order to get away with that, you have to say that health is a property of of the individual. Um, and I think there's a really beautiful quote from Cradle Community in their new book, Brick by Brick, who say many layers of oppression cut some lives short while the rich and powerful live long, healthy lives at the expense of others. So I think when we're looking at the distribution of disease and what counts as disease, it's really important to think about um, who is blamed for disease and who is responsible for health. Um, yeah, so I think that's kind of some of my thoughts on the history of, of disease. Well, that was dope. A lot, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> a lot of amazing points and linkages. I, I, I think the, the point you brought up about uh, health as being centered and focused on the individual and sort of it being a personal responsibility rather than a societal um i mean I, I guess it's sort of also rooted in sort of the you know the current medical biomedical view of health and how um we've really focused on the these bottom up processes and forgetting about all these top-down influences and determinants that that we're, we're trying to address uh in this report and i and i guess Rhiannon, how do you think the the medical field or domain is changing or trying to react to these sort of uh, this paradigm shift of, of really focusing on, you know, there's these there, there are these wider forces at play that are determining our health and and how and how do we address this? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question to think about because there definitely is more recognition of the wider determinants of health, but. In terms of if I've seen that kind of fundamentally change how we practice medicine, at least in my, but then again, I've only been doing it for like a few years as a student. So I don't know, it, like in my, in the experiences that I've had, I don't see that knowledge kind of fundamentally changing how medicine is practiced at the moment. And I think one of the important aspects of the biomedical model is not only is it really reductionist and organ focused and kind of focuses on you know medical optimization as I hear a lot on the wards which I always find a bit of a like toe curling term um so it, it concentrates disease in in the body and in individuals but it also concentrates power and who has power to take care of people who has power to like decide whether somebody gets care also concentrates power in the hands of of doctors and and in and in hospitals and sometimes that means that pathologizing something is the only way to get care and this kind of access to healing is is gatekept and so i think that it requires not only does recognizing the wider determinants of health mean that we have to kind of fundamentally basically fundamentally change how society is organized right because if you design an entire society to not to incorporate health and to focus on labor extraction and profit, then the side effects to health are not going to be great. So I think it's really important that health professionals are part of that advocacy for um, like basically a completely different social and economic order. But I think it's also important that we don't imagine that doctors and hospitals are the only people who can create health and who can kind of help people. And we kind of look at how we centre care back in communities, how we centre care as our collective responsibility, not something that we that we outsource to a ward, you know, at the at the at the earliest convenience. So I think not only is it about hospitals and and health professionals becoming part of that system change, but it's also part of actually kind of giving away some power and thinking about 
what are healing and caring systems that are centered in community, centered in collective care, um, and that and that don't you know always require you. Of course, like if you need it, then everyone should have access to care in a hospital or in a GP practice. Um, but kind of decentralizing some of that care as well, I think, is really important. Okay, so I just wanted to unpack some stuff and E, um, um, if you can help me out um, if I miss something. Um, so there's two things, and then and then we'll pass it back on over to Hannah. Um, the first thing is, can you give a clear example, Rhiannon, of how a transport system, because I think this is something that at times can be difficult for people to go from almost the inanimate as a transport system to the biological. But before that, the labor part that you were talking, because that also goes to what Hannah was talking about. And this is where I might need your help, Allahi. So we've been doing this for a very long time. And by we, I mean actually Western um, feudalist society has been doing this for a long time. So when you concentrate in one area, the labor, and I mean both land labor, so land as a per, as a as a as a being doing labor, and then non-human animals doing labor, and then obviously humans also doing labor. You concentrate all of that with no time or space, very much space for regeneration. So let's take whales in. Oh God, I'm going to get the timeline wrong. But when Wales was first colonized by the English and there were, there were a lot of mines that were set up, there were mining towns. So we are going quite back. And it's, and it's the reason it's being tied to feudal society is because it was only a certain amount of people that owned the land. And then if you weren't owning the land, you were working the land. And you have specifically these little towns. So I'm talking, sorry, I'm talking about a specific town, which is actually where I am living at the moment around the Lanover, um, Abergavenny stretch where there were very, very close quarters. So people were crammed in crowded spaces. Why? Because they were poor. Why were they poor? Because feudal society is that that's how it was organized. And they were living in these crowned spaces. They were also living in crowned spaces with non-human animals. So there was their opportunity of contagion of both bacteria and a virus. But why was there bacteria and virus there to begin with? Because the land was being over-labored. There was no time and space either for the land to recoup, to recoup the soil. So the microbiome of and almost the immune system of the land was also off, making room for the gut, for, sorry, for the, for the, for the, bacteria and viruses to evolve, then it's easy to evolve from there. It gets picked up by an animal, whether it's human or non-human, contagion happens. Not only that, but as contagion happens, whether when it starts maybe viral or bacterial, watching your loved ones go through the experience of poverty and the consequences of feudalism and classism, plus the disease that keeps occurring in your area that starts to go into the mental disorders, right? So the mental diseases of depression and anxiety, et cetera. So we see this full ecosystem coming together. So I'm going to pause there. Elahi, do you want to add anything to that, to that scenario? Yeah, I think just context-wise, when you look at how humans 
evolved and developed across across you know the millennia and you know we've moved from sort of the agricultural revolution from hunter gatherers to the agri- agri- agriculture revolution and then feudalism sort of propped up as a as a system within that period right and as you said like this this was one of the, the the newest time points where humans began to settle for prolonged periods um, and really begin to concentrate and stagnate within these within these areas with with each other within within uh, human populations but also with these other domesticated animals and it, this is just sort of the this in a, in conjunction with you know the feudal system which would amplify inequality and you know create a, a hotbed for chronic stress um it, it's just the right environment for these sorts of diseases to to emerge um, and proliferate hmm. exactly so thank you for that Allahi. so now i'm going to pass the ball over to hannah and rhiannon so there in that scenario how do we discuss this from a planning perspective because we are seeing a version of that now and then how do you pick that up and practice, Rhiannon, from, let's call it from your personal, how you want to do medicine, how you're seeing health justice. So Hannah first and then Rhiannon. Yeah, um, I think with what you're saying, it's like it really it really is mirrored in how um, cities are planned today. Because if you think about so much of the investment in transport infrastructure, for example, it's about the cost. So often it's done with a cost benefit analysis. So building the Elizabeth line or Crossrail or HS2, it's all about the economic payback of this. So um, I think like the way that cities are designed is like purely around um, an economic structure about how can you like increase the um, the the benefit, the economic benefit of doing an investment in somewhere. And I think when you look at transport maps and you can see where has the best connected places, you often have um, like high. Uh, like higher like higher concentrations of middle class people you get people with like better health as well and then when you look at other places that are less connected um they're having to travel way further to their jobs they're probably experiencing so much more um stress on the route as well and you look at like night bus routes or the night tube and when you start thinking about the way cities are structured you can also see um how it is really class-based and I think what was interesting about the pandemic is that um, the idea of going into the office ceased to be like that important and then when you think about how does how can people make the case for investing in um, the transport system for example um, really changes and where do we put money um, what what do we expect to be paid back from our investments um, becomes more interesting. So I think if you look at um, places like in the north, for example, at the north of England, um, there's like less investment in transport. Um, and then you also have like a more stagnated economy. You also have um, lower determinants of health. And I think um, the way cities are designed is inherently ideological um, and the way people therefore just live in them as if it's natural um, m- makes that people think um, that the way that like lifestyle is more important. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that, Hannah. And then Rhiannon, do you want to come in with the medical perspective and health justice perspective as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Um, so I think a lot of what you kind of mentioned was about how we are, um, at least this is how I interpret it, how we are in relation with the land and in relation with each other and how those relationships impact our health. And I think in the context of health justice, I think it's about the nature of those relationships and what underpins those relationships and are the foundations of those relationships something that's going to create a flourishing community or a flourishing city. Um, and I really liked what Hannah said earlier about disease being a symptom of imbalance with the world around us and imbalance between, say, like humans and nature or humans and non-human animals. Um, and I think one way to kind of, one lens through which to look at this is I think food systems are a really important part of this. Um, and I do work on food systems in kind of advocacy and research, but I also um, work every now and again at a community farm and a community kitchen near where where I live. And I think there's nothing to say, and indeed like the evidence points to lots of different ways of these relationships, there's, there's nothing inherent in our relationship with food and with land that has to make it so toxic. And, you know, there are lots of different ways for humans to be in relation to farming and agriculture that are actually the opposite, that they're health giving. And I think when we talk about food systems now, we often fall into the, the trap of talking about how they are how they are today, where the idea is to extract as much from the land as possible, make money, own the land. You know, if local people or indigenous people get in your way to drive them off, um, to get rid of biodiversity and to like de deforest huge parts of the earth. Um, whereas actually the systems like agroecological systems, which are also incredibly productive. I think there's a myth that industrial agriculture is really productive when it's degrading its own foundation and actually doesn't produce food in a way that feeds us. There are ways in which our relationships with land and our relationships with agriculture can be health giving, you know, that can regenerate soil, that can produce um, nourishing food, that can support food sovereignty and that can support thriving biodiversity. So I think a lot of it is about re-examining what, what underpins our relationships with each other and our relationships with the land and what principles are we using kind of like Hannah was saying what are we using to design cities what what ideological principles are we using and how does that shape whether a system is is health giving or or health taking and I, I see that a lot in terms of clinical practice when we um, talk about things like BMI which is actually a really dodgy um, measurement of someone's health and based on like very racist assumptions about what size and shape people should be um but you know we see it in terms of how lack of access to nutrition affects affects people's health and what do we do we blame the individual we say oh I can't believe you're going to McDonald's so much or like how come you don't exercise as much rather than examining the relationships that have that have led to that situation um and how we can support wider system change um so yeah, I think that would, that's my thoughts. <laughs> awesome. Thank you both. Um, so the last thing is that I wanted to go back, Rhiannon, to the transport issue. If you want to give that through line or a specific example of how, as I said, something that seems inanimate or completely unrelated to health does affect health. And then from there, we're going to go to the last segment, which is going to be you and Hannah riffing off of what is 
what could be exactly that, those design principles, those planning principles that make our habitats health, what did you say, health supporting versus, no, sorry, what were your words again? Say it again, Rannon, health? You said like health giving or health flourishing or, that's or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> versus health taking. I think that's the, that's a really good way, good vocabulary to use. So yeah, so do you want to take us through that through line and then we'll move towards, like I said, you guys ending the the report with those principles and or and or guidelines mm, yeah so when we think about transport systems and i have this conversation a lot in the context of the climate crisis and getting people to think about it it is about everything we do in our daily lives as communities and and as individuals so i think when we talk about emissions it can seem like oh that's like not directly related to me, but actually all of the systems that are causing the climate crisis are systems that are deeply intertwined with our daily lives. And transport is definitely one of them, you know, like how we get around, where we go, what it costs us to get around, all really, really um, kind of important aspects of our lives. So one of the kind of, I don't know if I say more obvious, but more talked about aspects of how transport systems impact our health is of course through air pollution, um, mostly from cars that burn fossil fuels in particular um and how that air pollution is distributed and it tends to be that air pollution is most distributed in areas that are poor in areas that have a like high portion of ethnic minority populations um and that's no kind of coincidence it's how environmental racism kind of manifests that like polluting industries polluting roads are concentrated around people with um less kind of wealth and social 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 capital and that has huge impacts on on people's health in an incredibly unequal way and again kind of points to the distribution of health and disease based on wealth um but i think another other aspects that are really important to think about is kind of these wider ideas of where can you go right like if you don't have access to a good public transport system or you can't afford a car like what is your access to different education opportunities what is your um access to different work opportunities and in particular also when we're thinking about um, kind of caring responsibilities and who is most impacted by caring responsibilities if there is a public transport system does it allow you to take multiple short trips to go and care for your relatives and pop to the shops or is it set up to go home work home work and that's you know all that all that matters in terms of your contribution to the economy so therefore all we're going to design a transport system around um and of course then we of course have active travel right are you able to walk are you able to cycle are you able to like be surrounded by nature when you do those things or are you kind of dodging cars for your life on a very busy and polluted road um so i think and most people i think kind of understand this right that like everything you experience in your daily life of course has an impact on your health and but i think it's the ideologies that don't understand that i think you know most people do um, but it's the way we govern our society and our economy that tells us that, no, it's your contribution to the labour force that matters, not whether you can go and see um, your relatives or, or go and care for your children. Yeah, it, it really seems like, I mean, as you just said, you, you can start from like the, the transport air pollution problem and it really branches out and, and taps onto all these other aspects of the human life, like our from public transport to our, our job and other social responsibilities and just seeing how, yeah, the, the, the current systems are really propping up 
a, a very specific economic model and and um, and way of, of and way of living that that that's been prescribed. And and I guess go, going back to the air pollution, um, how do you see this being addressed currently in sort of the the medical field and 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 discussions? Like, is this is this becoming a, a clearer topic that needs to be addressed acutely? And and what are the sort of strategies people are uh, are thinking about? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that air pollution is one area where there's actually been quite strong advocacy from health professionals um, related to policies. So, for example, um, yesterday, a big group of health professionals from Health for a Green New Deal, who I organised with, went to a protest and handed in a letter to stop the Silvertown tunnel um, based on the, um, the climate risks, but also the pollution risks to the local communities. Um, so I think kind of focusing on policies that, you know, impact um, communities is really, really important. But also you see things like adverts for anti-pollution inhalers, you know, which kind of just ugh, make me shiver because it's, again, kind of individualizing this systemic problem and like, oh, well, it, there's nothing we can do because it's not the responsibility of the economy or these companies to look after your health. So here's a air pollution inhaler that will help it not completely mess up your lungs. So I think you can see it in, in two different directions. One where health professionals are kind of mobilizing for more equitable policy making, and the other where we're going to end up promoting individualized solutions. Um, and I think what I hope is that people don't stop at air pollution because it's one of thousands of ways in which um environmental racism, environmental classism, and the structure of our economies and societies impacts our health. And sometimes I see kind of people stopping at air pollution. Um, and what I really want to do is kind of keep radicalizing people beyond beyond that. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Rhiannon. So Hannah, over to you on, let's say, guiding principles, methodology, strategies of how you, based on your knowledges would like to see cities being places that can hold or give to health, right? Uh, sorry, that support health or give to health. Um, also bringing in some of the, some of your thoughts, as you were saying about the child perspective. Yeah, I think I'd just like to like go off one thing that Ryan was saying about air pollution is that so often we think about air pollution from just like a transport perspective and not the building materials of the places within which we live. And I think like so much of respiratory health is also so many people live in really damp homes where there's like really poor air circulation, they don't have proper ventilation, there isn't proper sunlight. And I think thinking about um, air pollution, the air we breathe, the houses that we live in. This is these are all really important questions, and so often it's people living in like insecure housing under private landlords or in social housing that's been like um, contracted out of the council hands, and that people tend to live in such um, poor quality housing, and therefore it impacts their health. But in terms of how 
um, how it can change from a planning perspective, I think, and this is like so oversaid, but it's because it doesn't really happen. Um, but it's to have like real engagement with um, the people who live in environments to have a say, because they ultimately are the experts of their own experience and the places that they live in. And I think for children, um, it's really important because we have this idea of children also as citizens and how like a civic responsibility, and then you expect people to start voting at at 18, but they've never lived um, with any sense that their voice matters or what does it even mean to be an active member of society. And I think children are very astute, at, especially at their eye level, because they're looking at like the wheels of cars or the bottoms of trucks or the bottoms of buses when they're walking around, um, that we start to engage with what it is that they see in the city and how can they move more freely. And children aren't necessarily so bound in by where the pavement is and where the grass is and don't walk on the grass. And I think when we start to look through um, a child's perspective, we can see that the things that a city needs um, are not just like um, the material element of it. Um, so I was working with children um, a few years ago about what what can they ask for from the city's mayor um, for their for their city. And it wasn't just about having more street lights so they could see. It wasn't just about having bins so that they could have, um, didn't need to have litter on the streets. It was also about um, they wanted to have more friends or they wanted to have more imagination um, or they wanted to like, be able to see the birds in the trees more and things. So I think there's more about like listening to more voices that would be more helpful in the urban planning space. And then from an environmental perspective, I think there's um, so often there's a lot of like rushing around the mitigation element of it. But seeing as we're currently living in climate crisis, I feel like there's much more that could be done um, on planning cities in an adaptive way, in flexible ways, um, using green infrastructure, bringing in um, elements of, of the natural world back into the city um, so that we can, we can also witness um, the seasons and we can witness changes in the climate and not just experience it um, in a negative way. Um, I'll pass over to Rhiannon and, and then come back again. Yeah, oh, I love that, Hannah. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I definitely agree. I think I've done some work with my local government looking at kind of sustainable policies locally and healthy policies locally. And, you know, we got a team of quote unquote experts um, to come up with a load of recommendations. And then I did a, a kind of mini citizens assembly and there was only about two of the 30 that the people who lived in the communities didn't um come up with already um so I, I think that's really important and I think for me it go it comes down to what we are designing our societies for you know and I think we've spent so long with GDP and economic growth on this throne of these things are good don't question them and they will eventually lead to better health and, and well-being and I think we know that that is not true. So I think how we dethrone dethrone the idea that we need economic growth, that we need growth in capital and we need growth in markets because an abundance of capital, and, and in particular under capitalism, abundance of capital at the top, right? It's not an abundance of collective wealth. It's not an abundance of care. It's not an abundance of, of well-being. It's not an abundance of health. Um, it's abundance of capital, which doesn't necessarily equate to abundance of well-being. So I think 
things like degrowth, eco-socialism and various different ways of trying to dethrone GDP and dethrone economic growth. They enable us to ask the questions about what we want from each other, how we want to take care of each other and the land. Um, and I think it's only then that we can start thinking about what we actually want to design and how we actually want to live. Yeah, awesome. Um, well, thank you so much, Rhiannon and Hannah, for uh, coming on and providing such amazing knowledge um, in this first audio report. Um, and yeah, just in terms of the outro and, and what and, and what we, I sort of have gained in terms of insights, it really does seem that in terms of human health and, and disease and the relation between them, we really need to consider these wider determinants, you know, the current economic models and interests really do apply these strong, strong top-down influences onto our urban systems, whether it be transport or agriculture, and they really do shape the practices that, that influence human health and disease. And as you said, sort of the, the human health uh, flourishing aspect, it really does require this a, a better balance and in tunus with nature and 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 going on what you just said about changing our ways of thinking and our systems we really it, it really does seem we have to break away from you know these entrenched economic models and systems and and try and steer towards these more decentralized local sustainable practices both at the social level agricultural and then other aspects of our urban systems and yeah I think prioritizing the individual's lived experience really is also an important aspect of achieving this. We really need to listen to the people. Citizens are their, are their experts of their local domains, and we can't really navigate our way out of the current systems without you know, collectivizing and, and listening and strategizing together. This show and the work of the Urban Health Council wouldn't have been possible without the support of funders and contributors. If this is your first time listening to the show, please head over to urbanhealthcouncil.com to check out more. And if you can, please consider becoming a supporter. Thanks. Bye.